0: This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1169, which is entitled, A Wizard of Earth, She. (laughs) Our podcast title is, The Dispodest, and I am Rob Jan.
0: And Megan McHugh.
1: And today's show is all about Ursula K. Le Guin.
0: Yes, which I'm sorely undereducated on. I've not read much of her work prior to this, but I think I'll definitely be, did I say watched? Read.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's not all about the media.
0: Um, Yes, so I'm not that well versed in her yet, yet
1: u.s american science fiction grandmaster ursula krober leguin uh she's passed away she was born on october the 21st in 1929 and died on january the 22nd um now i'm entirely used to popular music stars passing away and me never having heard of them (laughs) and usually not being able to put their name to the most famous songs either Uh, It's a lot less used to it uh, With it happening to acknowledge titans In the Mm. science fiction and fantasy genre That I'm otherwise marinated in Now, I'm pretty sure That I've read The Left Hand of Darkness The Dispossessed The word for world is forest In fact, I am 100% sure of that one Mm -hmm. And The Lave of Heaven But for the life of me I couldn't remember a single thing about them beyond Mm. the vague idea that Forrest had an anti-war imperialism theme possibly being something to do with a Vietnam metaphor given when it was written. Look, I'm sure I read them in the 1970s, which means I'm probably ready to read them again now Mm -hmm. with hopefully a little more attention than I paid to them (laughs) back then. Um, All of which is neither here nor there. It's enough that Ursula K. Le Guin is clearly deeply mourned by a very large section of the genre community, Mm. respect. She was a writer. Now, I think I have quite a few tracks, actually, that I have sorted out for today. And um, I think we will go with a track which is from an album called uh, Places and Numbers, Notes from the Dead Zone and this is just A Wizard of Earthsea. This is Cecilia D'Art Thornton, author of the Bitterwine Trilogy and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. and no, I can't get you Billy Bob's autograph. There we go. A, uh, a little bit of a track there from um, uh, a group that's um, not necessarily associated with Ursula Le Guin, but uh, it's a Wizard of Earthsea Places and Numbers Notes from the Dead Zone, so I thought we'd go with um, that particular one there. So we are paying tribute to Ursula K. Le Guin Mm -hmm. late Grand Master of Science Fiction, and if I may also say, a Wizard of Earthsea herself Mm. a great writer. Now I think um uh the uh thing to do is to proceed onwards to have a look at some of her work in general and in particular we'll focus in on two books that we've recently read or reread yeah. one of the earthsea novels and also um uh, the left hand of darkness so uh just looking at um her life she uh was uh, the daughter of an anthropologist and also a a writer who was also a bit of an anthropologist as well. And this, of course, really does shine through in her writing. Uh, That's one of her main themes, Mm. if you have to go in thematically. Um, She... uh, Theodora... Krober was her mum's name, and she used to accompany her husband on his anthropological theme trips. And she actually wrote books that were retellings of um, various uh, Native American Indian legends as well. And some actually were turned into movies. So, you know, there's this thing running in her family. It's no wonder that she did what she did. Mm. Uh, And she also had a a lot of... um, um interaction with her parents friends which included a lot of native americans and also robert oppenheimer oh that robert oppenheimer
0: interesting yeah
1: very interesting yeah and he um went on to become kind of a part model for a character in the dispossessed so she um focuses in upon science fiction and fantasy And there's a lot of alternate worlds there involved in that, which allows her to play with her conception of politics, um, gender, the natural environment, religion, sexuality and ethnography. I love that word. (laughs) She's a a Berkeley graduate and um, she also uh, had um, studies in Renaissance French and Italian literature. Uh, and I actually think some of that shows in her work too There's, In particular in um, Left Hand of Darkness There's a lot of Machiavellian machinations From the various factions in that But I thought that mm. sounds very much like rela- Renaissance Italy uh, Her husband was a professor of English And at least one of her um, offspring is a professor as well huh. So, you know, he's got this whole thing running there um, very learned family. Very learned family, yeah. Her influence upon other writers includes names like Neil Gaiman, Ian Banks. That's Ian, all of the Banks, all of the initials. Salman Rushdie, David Mitchell. And you can see developments of particular topics that may very well be traceable to her in films like Avatar, mm. for example. Uh, and quite a few others as well. She had a big influence upon science fiction and fantasy fandom. Um, She was here uh, in 1975, which must have been when I saw her, for um, one of the Aussie cons, one of the world cons. That was
0: was, pre-my time.
1: (laughs) She's a guest of honour there. (laughs) And um, she did a writer's workshop there too, uh, and you can trace the the uh, inspiration of several Australian science fiction and fantasy writers to her visit here. So mm. she had that kind of influence upon people. And she also um, was not afraid. She, she won so many different awards, uh, as I was saying, the uh, nominated as a Grand Master of Science Fiction, um, one of the few women writers to actually have that, um, that honour. And, you know, National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters... Hugo Award, Nebula Award, Locus Award, mm. World Fantasy Award, all of those things and many more. And she was always one to stand up at the ceremony and use it as a platform for whatever she was feeling at the moment, mm. whatever she felt. A woman needed. before her time. Um, I don't know about before. This is the 1960s onwards. So. Well,
0: I guess I suppose... I'm thinking more about these days people are starting to use those platforms a bit more to, you know, talk about some bigger things. Um, They were doing
1: it back then, so...
0: (laughs) I think there's probably a big gap in where, um, in the 90s and early 2000s where...
1: People fell silent. Fell off
0: a little, and then it's back. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, go on.
1: No, no, that's that's, that's fine. She's... um uh, written so much um, science fiction and fantasy that you have to actually break it up into chunks to sort of even begin to look at it. Uh, and the first one of them is uh, the one major cycle is the Earthsea novels and short stories. Uh, so there's a number of um, books there plus the short story ones. And The Wizard of, a Wizard of Earthsea in 1968 um, came out and it was um, basically a, a small press book and illustrated by Ruth Robbins in a really lovely fashion. The illustrated copy has woodcut-like drawings in it. Mm. A lovely sort of thing. Uh, this is... Um, well, I don't need to tell this. Megan has just re- has just read it.
0: Yes, excellent segue. Um, so, like I said, I have not... I hadn't read any Le Guin before. Um, I have a friend who really loves her and had sort of recommended me books in the past, and I said to her when I heard about her passing... Um, you know, what's maybe some, something good for me to tackle for today and wanted to sort of dig into a bit more, which I think is something nice um, because for those who may not have known much about Le Guin or been very exposed to her, um, perhaps her death might encourage more people to actually sort of pick up her work now that it's in the news a bit more and things like that. Anyway, I'm just thinking that might be a little side um, benefit seems wrong, but just something nice. You know, she's getting a little bit of press. So I read the first book, A Wizard of Earthsea. So I've got this little sort of um, quartet book. So it's all collected together as the Earthsea quartet. I know there's another novel. So I think there's other versions that have all five. Um, but this collection has A Wizard of Earthsea, The Tombs of Atuan, The Farthest Shore and Tahanu. It's huh, very good place-esque. Oh. Um, and then there's another novel called The Other Wind, Um, which came out a bit later. And so I think there are some collections that you can get that one in. But this is the first four of what they call the Earthsea Quartet. So I went through the first book of this over the weekend, Wizard of Earthsea. They're all quite short. So this collected all together is only about 700 pages or so.
1: That book would be a a single fantasy book in the 21st century. A short one, really. A short one, yeah. Wouldn't it
0: be? So I think... um, the first one's very much the setup coming coming-of-age story. I'd be interested to see what the other books are like. I'm definitely going to continue reading. So it's a fantasy story, and it starts off, we follow a young wizard called um, Ged, also called Sparrowhawk. And she really sets up this very interesting world that's very much about balance and the light and the dark and sort of the, the greater picture of how things fit together and um, when you shake that balance or use... Um, magic for ill or you just use it out of balance you know the consequences of that so the novel starts off gets a young, proud quite annoying youth if I'm being honest, I did not like him but you're not <laughs> meant to and uh, he learns a very hard lesson about invoking power beyond his means even though he's a very powerful wizard and people sort of tell him from an early age that he seems to have the gift um, he sort of is quite proud and really wants to prove himself and he's sort of motivated by some of the more negative energies like um envy and hate and anger and things like that and so anyway ged grows up in a small um island of earth sea which is sort of the region that we're in and she does a really nice job of setting up the area, and also the cult, different cultures and the way the world is set up in terms of the different levels of there's wizards, there's sorcerers, there's mages, things like that. So he, she does a really lovely job of um, setting up what, he's, what his background is. So he comes from Gaunt. And then we follow him, obviously, um, the natural story is he ends up going to this isle where, of Roque where he is, goes to a wizard school.
1: A wizard school. A, now, a magic this is, school. This is important, actually. She's uh, one of the first writers, if not the first in fantasy, to actually use one of those.
0: Mm, like a color, somewhere where they would all go to learn. So mm. there's all different levels of wizards there. or sorry, different people learning, different craft, and not all of them reach wizard status. And she does a really nice job, I think, of describing... Um, she sets up sort of a little different cultures and you get a good sense of get. And anyway, so... He learns this dark lesson and then he has to go on this journey and it's first he's the hunted and then he becomes the hunter and he goes on this largely philosophical journey about the self and, you know, in enveloping the more negative aspects of oneself. So what I found was very interesting, it's definitely a fantasy story and I think it's very well drawn, but it was described to me as she's a very philosophical fantasy writer and I definitely think that's true. I think some of the themes in here... There's some lovely passages that you could just view as nice thoughts on the world or philosophical musings built within the story. And then there's some really lovely thoughts around the self and the different elements that make up the self. And so it's definitely motivated by a more deeper philosophical bent. There's a narrative there, definitely, and it moves along. Like I said, it's quite short, but it's very readable. It's quite pacey. You do get a sense of the character's... um, There's a couple of other people, but it's very largely focused on Ged's journey. And then I think now that he's sort of overcome one of these big hurdles in his early young life, because he starts off, I think, quite young. And at the end of the first book, he's only about 19 or 20. So these other books, I'm assuming, will follow him. I'd be keen to follow his journey and growth into a man and all of those other themes. But I definitely enjoyed this. I think it was a really nice... Um, little fantasy story, I think technically this is more directed as something of a young adult novel yeah. and I think also the coming of age story and the fact that the protagonist, the age of the protagonist, I think if you're looking up the definition of young adult um, those things do fall within that um, umbrella yeah. but I would think, I mean, it's beautifully written, I really enjoy it I think it holds up, obviously it was written in 1960, or released in 1968 Does it feel dated? No, some of the language or turns of phrase were more old-fashioned but not to the point where it's confusing and certainly um I think any little there wasn't there wasn't really much in there that made it feel dated to me. I really feel like it holds up as in this day and age. There's certainly nothing, you know, sometimes you read older novels and there's some problematic language, there's certainly nothing like that. And it's quite beautifully written. And I think even the terms of phrase that are a little more old-fashioned still sit very nicely within the story. So I would, I really liked this. I'm definitely going to read the next one, which is Tombs of Atuan.
1: How do you feel it, it um, in terms of uh, its obvious inspiration for Harry Potter sort of feeling?
0: It's interesting. I mean, I think there's a yes and a no on that. I think this is very much... Um, Um, a self it's sort of an examination of the self and it's a very internal story Mm -hmm. and it's very much within the realm of Ged and it's very much talking about, there's some bigger picture themes and ideas but I find it to be a very contained story that just happens to take place in a magical world I, I view Harry Potter as something that has definite There's a definite large web of a narrative and a larger plot. Not that this wasn't plot driven, but I think that's a much more external story. Like she's really building a world. The world building here is well done, but I think it's incidental because I think what she's focusing on with this is much more about people's personal journeys and, you know, yeah, Not Dizzy on Harry. He definitely went through a journey. But I, I think, if anything, this is a lovely inspiration for that type of story. And I definitely I agree with you. I think it's a lovely idea that there's a wizarding school and a place where wizards or people with magic inclinations can learn and grow. So I think there's ideas in here that have definitely influenced fantasy as a genre and other writers. But I would say that this offers something quite different. And I think, I think in, a, in a way, it's more of an inspiration.
1: When I find my copy, or more likely when I find Gail's copy, my partner's, um, I'll have a check that one too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think, and the, the interesting thing is I did see there was a Studio Ghibli adaptation of this. There is. Tales of Earthsea. So I had watched that when it came out in the cinema, which was quite a while ago. I believe it was around 2001. Ish. Yep. Um, Anyway, so I had seen that, but I hadn't really remembered. Sorry, 2006. Got ahead of myself. 2006. I hadn't really remembered much about it. I remember enjoying it, and I remember thinking it was a nice story. But
1: nothing to do with...
0: It was quite forgettable, which is odd, because I think Chibli films do their own. I think some of those themes really match up quite well in terms of bigger picture ideal sort of musings about nature and the balance yep. of things, all of that. We see those in a lot of different Ghibli films. And I think, well, because it wasn't a Miyazaki. It was a Miyazaki, but not Hayao Miyazaki. It was his son. It was. It was Goro. Goro. So... I mean, I think it was a nice film, but I don't think it capitalised on some of the ideas that I've seen in her work from reading it, nor some of the things that we've seen in other films, which I found, Jubilee films, which I found quite interesting. So obviously the fact I had forgotten that film didn't stay with me.
1: Well, Gordo is um, self-proclaimed landscape gardener as opposed to director. He didn't really want to follow in his father's footsteps. (laughs) And I think it actually shows in Tales from Earthsea, which is pulling out elements of um, a couple of the books mm. and putting them together. A
0: mishmash, which is something that happens commonly and I think is okay.
1: But they've also incorporated elements from one of his father's mongers um, in there yeah. too. So when Ursula Le Guin diplomatically said... Well, she actually said quite a few things along the way. Yeah. But one of them, eventually she said that uh, it's a good film, but it's not my book. No.
0: I think so. it's, a, it's a classic kubrick Stephen King kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. situation <laughs> where...
1: A bit of an uneasy meld.
0: Yeah. And, and it's a shame because I think this is this story is um, very primed for adaptation. Yeah. It me think Especially a lot about of, Ghibli. Yeah. It made me think a lot about the life of Pi mm-hmm. and... Just the style of that and how that film was done, I think if you went into doing an adaptation of this with that similar sensibility, would be quite lovely. Because, like I said, I think it's a solitary story in a lot of ways.
1: If you want a better version, then you're best going to radio, um, <laughs> to the 1996 one where they've done a radio play narrated by Judy Dench. Oh,
0: the Dench. Can't or, go wrong yeah, there.
1: Yeah, um, And they've done a few other versions like that. So mm. that's a better, at least up till now. But, you know, it does make me wonder if there's going to be...
0: Well, like a Netflix I said,
1: series or
0: I mean she's obvious she's a pivotal writer and I don't think by any means she's ever fallen off anyone's radar but I think in terms of maybe a bit more uptake on some of her work I think would be lovely
1: well Probably. you know in terms of grand masters of science fiction and the era that she comes from mm. and the area where she's had a lot of influence in the the, um, the time span this is like Robert Heinlein Ray Bradbury Arthur C Clarke or Isaac yeah. Asimov and so she should be really included in the big five sort mm. of from that particular era um okay well nevertheless it's actually got a quite good soundtrack the <laughs> tales from earth sea well you know um it's not unusual it's not a bad film it's just i think a missed opportunity yeah so we're going to go with theru's song which is from tales from earth sea and this is an a cappella version mm. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that zero g on three triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the Black Stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha! With three exclamation marks.
0: Yes, that was Theru's song from the Ghibli film version of Tales from Earthsea, Tales of Earthsea. That was Aoi Teshima, mm. and this is Triple R and Zero G.
1: Yeah, um, I was just thinking about the, uh, the passing of Ursula Le Guin, great science fiction writer, although she preferred just to be called a writer or an mm-hmm. author. Um, In many of the speeches, she caved before various august bodies. She had a particular axe to grind, a good one too, I always thought, uh, about um, back in the days when science fiction and fantasy were seen as less important Mm. than literary fiction.
0: Yeah. uh,
1: Which, of course, nowadays still actually prevails in some circles, but, you know, Yaboo sucks eggs because (laughs) essentially it's... um, not really an issue anymore. <laughs> the uh, the student has surpassed the master in so many areas. So now it's just jealousy. <laughs> oh dear, this shouldn't be smoke, should I? <laughs> well, okay, so we'll have a brief look at the um, Earthsea cycle that mm-hmm. Ursula Le Guin wrote. And then there's um, a couple of other ones too. This is a writer of a prolific writer of mighty amounts of just work across both science fiction and fantasy. Now, the Hainish cycle, H-A-I-N-I-S-H, that's eight novels,
0: Mm.
1: and these are science fiction novels generally. Um, Well, sometimes they walk a little bit like fantasy novels. So She's able to cross over quite fluidly there. She reminds me a bit of Barbara Hambly. I like that. Uh, Rocannon's World... In 1966, The Left Hand of Darkness in 69, The Dispossessed, to give it its full title, An Ambiguous Utopia in 74, Mm -hmm. and the charmingly titled The Word for World is Forest in 76, which Mm -hmm. is more a kind of a novella, uh, and the telling, as well as a dozen in uh, 2000, a dozen or so short stories, also pepper the narrative of the heinish cycle and um Rakanen's world is is actually the first of those ones and it's kind of a um they use it they use the term rip van winkle because she explores the idea with um time dilation in the uh, starship flights it um time passes more slowly uh, on board the starship compared to back home mm. or the destination. So, um, 50 years may pass and you and only spent, you know, a few weeks on board the ship or whatever it is, whatever the factor is. So that one explores that. It's a very tightly written um, little science fiction novel, very, very brief, but it gets to all the destinations that it has to do uh, as well as including dwarves and elves. (laughs) Yeah, she's just just feeling out. (laughs) No small talent, is she? Uh, One of the later novels, The Dispossessed, is um, much more about a a sort of a a two-party dystopia system. and There's a lot of politics in that one. Um, There's several worlds in play here. One of them is a, a world that's got an an anarcho-syndicalist commune on it, always like that, <laughs> so Monty Python, um, so she spends a lot of time exploring that, and it's also got to do with the, uh, the Ansible communicator, which is a contraction of the word answerable, mm-hmm. and it's um, her very special f- word coinage there, the okay. Ansible. Um, and it's basically a, a f- either a faster-than-light communicator or an instantaneous one, depending on where you're coming at it from. Uh, and that means that you can basically just talk to anyone around her sort of universes quickly. Mm. So actually faster than you can get there from the, by ship. Okay. And this has consequences, which she does explore in many of her books. And it also... Um, <sighs> It tends to take the, the the interstellar conflict part out of several of her stories, and and that to me is an interesting exploration there, um, you know, and I don't know. I, I'm speculating. I don't know here if it's a, a male science fiction writer thing and a, or a female one. Who cares, really? Mm. Let's just say this is Ursula Le Guin's style. So she sometimes doesn't go for that big epic conf- conflict that you often see in space opera. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean to say she hasn't doesn't have her own galactic wars and stuff kicking around in the background sometimes, but that's not her main focus. And if it is, she's not generally on the side of the. Uh, the two-fisted, um, engineering-booted white man from Earth yes. side. <laughs> so, um, and actually, that was another disappointment with the um, the Earthsea um, book, which the film, sorry, yeah. which has a white protagonist in it.
0: And this is the thing: like in the book, you can tell they're obviously, um, you know, some of them are black, some of them are described as being brown skins,
1: red brown Native American. Exactly, yeah.
0: and I mean the images on my the book, the copy that I have. They're
1: quite clearly done in that style. hm mm. Yeah. So anyway, um i am moving along through the uh the Hainish cycles. Uh there's one book that uh in particular, and it's um it is the uh left hand of darkness. Now I have my copy here of that. It's a uh a Virago Press. Um this one particular, this particular edition came out in 1997, so I've had this for quite a while, although I know lots of people who've got uh, classic Le Guin from the 70s and the 60s too. Now, it providentially dropped out of a box of books being unpacked for shelving. So, yeah, what could I do? <laughs> um, and And I have to say, I can't remember anything about it <laughs> until I read it. And yeah. then I'm thinking, what the hell were you thinking? Uh, it is immediately clear that the writing is at grandmaster level um, even if the subject wouldn't necessarily attract me from the blurb mm, Okay. Um, to borrow one of the many elegantly turned sentences from the book I'm exceedingly ignorant <laughs> in fact I left this on the table at home yesterday this book and after the cat had finished riffing through its pages <laughs> Gail picked it up as she was walking past
0: oh.
1: now I was busy shelving books and I had my head down working on stuff and and she picked it up and she was standing next to the table leafing through it. When I looked up again 15 minutes later, she was still reading it. Still standing up. Like it had arrested her walking across the room. The
0: cover... This cover doesn't do much for it. It's a nothing
1: cover. It means nothing. it's a
0: bit of a shame, isn't it? This book actually... Quick side note: um, One of the first times I heard of Le Guin, this book and that cycle actually is a key plot point in the film The Jane Austen Book Club. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. So
1: I cruised through it, um, which is an it's amusing... It's a good
0: length as well.
1: Oh, it's only. It's two... very readable. Two hundred and yeah, exactly two forty-five. That's like a, cha- a hardly a chapter in a in a modern fantasy book. Or, or, or a, a Harry, Harry Potter, or... Potter, like yeah. that's
0: that's shorter than the first Harry Potter.
1: It was an amusing thing to do in an Australian summer (laughs) heatwave because you're trying to project yourself onto an ice-bound planet whose Terran name is Winter. (laughs) They have like 67 words for snow. Um, I don't remember if I'd read this one before, and I think I would, but if I did, it was in the early 1970s when I was in one of my book-devouring phases, and I was just like (laughs) stuffing books into my face constantly.
0: (laughs) When was that one released Sorry.
1: Uh, I think 60 This one was um, 97 This ah, particular one it's Yeah Penguin imprint um, So And I clearly didn't give it proper attention Now Now of course I see it as a first rate Bit of world building And character building too mm. uh, Kind of like a gentler Or um, Genlier Which is a pun That you won't understand Unless you read the book Ooh. It's kind of like A in joke Yeah It's kind of like an icy dune Okay uh, In some respects Poff. There's a trek across the ice-bound planet that's certainly a well-crafted saga in itself, Mm. and it reminds me in detail of Scott and Shackleton's adventures, so it really rings true. It's certainly a major genre novel that hasn't dated much at all.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the key strengths, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be a theme with her stuff.
1: And as I said, I'd forgotten that Le Guin coined the term Ansible, Uh, She uses that in this because there are devices across the Hainish cycle that she perpetuates.
0: But that's the thing with, I think, good science fiction and good fantasy is that, I mean, apart from maybe some superficial things, it doesn't date because it should tap into some, I don't know, long-lasting...
1: There are some important things to be said about this book, uh, sociologically speaking. She's done this thought experiment where she said, what if you remove sexuality from people? Mm. The inhabitants of this planet uh, hermaphroditic they can change sex on, on a sort of um, a monthly cycle or whatever it is mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how, how long it is it's all told out worked out in the um, in the back section where they've got um, a calendar and clock she's that kind of world builder yep I love it <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a, a fascinating sort of idea um, she also has like uh, the character the, the people from I actually should explain exactly how this works um, there is a um, uh, an overriding galactic civilization called the Ecumen. Mm. It's kind of a mixture of mysticism and science. They've come to some kind of balance between the two. Mm. Um, and they send. To contact or to recontact worlds that have fallen out of communication, and and this is what's happened. There have been this great diaspora of human beings. Some of the uh, the, the, they've fallen out of contact and developed by themselves, and now they're in the process of recontacting them. I'm not really sure if it was actually um, initiated by by Earth itself, the actual um, uh, diaspora. There might have been other. We we might actually be one of the. the worlds that were colonised who knows who knows um shouldn't go that far back and i haven't read enough of them to to know so not yet not <laughs> yet not yet uh and so they send the ecumen sends out uh, an ambassadorial investigative party first off they send a, a small bunch of covert investigators and because um the, they're all really basically humans they can get away with sort of infiltrating the society and learning mm-hmm. about it they write a report send back information then they send a, an am, a kind of an ambassador and they only send one mm. the starship stays out in space they use a just a little rocket lander they send one person and this is really 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 i think characteristic of Le, of Le Guin and her where she's coming from anthropologically speaking yeah. she's a listener yeah. She's a talker too, but first she's a listener. She likes to study things. So that's what happens here, sending one ambassador who doesn't have a mighty starship grounded behind him or just hanging overhead in orbit, you know, being able to do all sorts of wondrous technological fates. She uses this man, one person, a man or a woman, it's a man in this case, uh, to interact with the society and they're forced to listen mm. and take the society on its own terms this is not that this is the exact opposite of the uh, of the of the, the the overriding trope in science fiction in the 1960s yeah you know That's so there's so interesting it is a very interesting way to do it and the novel itself has some structural um, cleverness in it too uh, the the ambassador um, generally he has to interact with um, uh, the prime minister of one of the continents, one of the kingdoms there, Esterovan, I think, actually, (laughs) Esterovan, it's hard to pronounce, anyway. Um, And alternate chapters are often written from the other guy's point of view, from the prime minister's point of view. So you've got alien and indigenous person interacting. And there's all sorts of problems that come from that. And mistakes that are made partly to do, do with the gender um, fluidity but mm. uh, with a lot of other reasons as well uh, and the fact that this planet does not speak with one voice yet there are several different kingdoms and, and different types of um, of places including one place that uh, is kind of dystopic as well so she gets little digs in in there it's a very complicated book Uh, And very well worth reading. Even just for the the, the wonderful lines in there. One stage, they go to a place called the Fastnesses, which are up in the mountains, and uh, they practice an art called foretelling. They can actually do accurate prophecy there. And... um, as uh as one of the, the monks at the fastness says well we come here to the fastnesses mostly to learn what questions not to ask mm. and generally says but you're the answerers you don't see yet why are we perfected and practiced foretelling well no to exhibit the perfect uselessness of knowing the answer to the wrong question <laughs> and there's so much stuff in that so like, good and the detail is to perfection in places. Apart from the sixty-seven words for snow, um, when she visits the king of the first place, that she, sorry, when generally visits the the king of the first in the first place that he lands, uh, <laughs> there's just this lovely passage where he's walking along this half a mile long gallery. And his new boots are squeaking, going, ek, 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 as he's walking down <laughs> towards the king, who's mad, by the way. Well, obviously. <laughs> and not just because he's got people with squeaky boots coming to get onto him. But, you know, this is a first class novel. Mm. Um, you know, it's The Left Hand of Darkness. It's by Ursula Le Guin. And I tell you what, if you can manage to get into the icy cold state when you're watching this, uh, when you're reading this during the summer, yeah. you're doing well. <laughs> But she could easily do that. Now, adaptations of this. Yes. uh, Not as such. Right. Um, I think there's probably at least... There's probably an audio book and so on. But there's um, a company called Critical Content, which is in a bit of a state of flux at the moment. They were developing The Left Hand of Darkness as a limited series television show. Mm -hmm. And Le Guin was going to serve as a consulting producer and alas,
0: It is a shame, actually, that now if they do do more adaptations... There won't be her voice to kind of have any input on those, mm. Um, mm. which I think is a bit of a shame. But
1: all right, well, we'll play a track here to um, riff off that, and I will tell you that it is track, um, uh, a track called Shifgrethor, and it's that's that's actually a word that means a whole lot on the planet in the left hand of darkness and it's it's a concept it's about personal dignity and prestige and pride and a whole bunch of things thrown into one and you can actually like it's actually a philosophy of life and it, but if you really want to have a, a conversation with someone and you want it out of the way you can just say i wave shift It <laughs> just ignore that all of that stuff
0: this is raymond D. defice scribe of metamia and you're listening to zero g science fiction fantasy and
1: historical radio uh, now, we were just playing a track there from The Left Hand of Darkness. And it's actually a, an album called The Left Hand of Darkness. I don't know why I put a Scottish accent on there. There's no reason for that. <laughs> it's just a lot of nonsense. Uh, anyway, um, we were talking about the work of the late, great Ursula K. Le Guin, who's just passed away. And just listing the various cycles of her work, Um, He's taking the whole show up, basically. But we've we've visited some of them in a little bit more detail as we've gone along. The Orsinian Tales, which are 11-plus short stories set in the imaginary Central European country of Orsinia. So she's actually playing on Earth in a kind of a made-up setting, which is actually a grand tradition in mainstream literature. Quite a few authors have made up their own little countries to set things in. And um, she had other cycles, including uh, the children's literature-based... Um, Chronicles or Annals of the Western Shore and Cat Wings, which is a lovely idea of kittens born with wings. <laughs> or is it a lovely idea? if they were Or scary. <laughs> scary, probably. Uh, her Also, her standalone novels like The Lave of Heaven in 1968, a uh, big, important book of hers, that one, um, set in uh, the year 2002, so we've surpassed that, uh, in a globally warmed world amongst other things where it rains a lot in Portland, Oregon. Um, and that one has the key concept of a guy called George Orr past, uh, you know, George Orwell is kind of um, thrown in there as a comparison. And his dreams can actually alter reality. Uh, so here's another, a real. Here's, here's where psychology comes in as as an actual plot device. Uh, and that one has been adapted twice to tele movie status uh once in the in 1980 to pretty good effect actually although they had a low budget they didn't manage to i can remember that, that one the special effects were nothing basically but um, they did a lot better it was far more accurate mm. than the later adaptation in the 2000s which wasn't anywhere near as good and i think um leguin wasn't too happy with that one so, Life of Heaven is one of her major novels that you should check out. Um, but you can also read a more later book, uh, Lavinia, uh, in 2008. This one came out, and this is actually um, about the aftermath of the uh, the Trojan War. Oh. So, she's done a historical novel in this one, and that one is worth looking at as well as a couple of dozen short fiction and poetry collections.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know. We're not short of content to no. catch up
1: on here. And something like 20 non-fiction books, a great deal of which were to do with um, uh, exploring how to write. Mm. You know, So she's left a legacy there too. Uh, although she only edited, as far as I can find out, one volume of... Um, Nebula award-winning stories. So she didn't do too many of that. It's often a a tradition. Science fiction authors go and do all sorts of things, edit other anthologies and so on, as well as being a translator in Taoism.
0: Gosh, she's such a slacker, that one. Yeah,
1: as you'll notice, Taoism is important in The Wizard of Earth, see? So she's got that kind of... um, multi-talented uh, poly not a polymath she said she didn't like mathematics <laughs> but you know she just did so much all right so um we will uh, move along oh, yes. now. I just wanted to yeah, wrap up yeah, with yeah.
0: It's a nice quote. Yes. Now, it's a little bit long, but it's worth it, trust me. Okay. So it's from The Farthest Shore, which is the third book in the Earth-Sea cycle.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's just something, you know, she's very quotable, and there's been a lot of quotes sort of um, around, and this one's particularly nice. Um, you will die. You will not live forever, nor will any man nor anything. Nothing is immortal. But only to us is it given to know that we must die. And that is a great gift, the gift of selfhood. For we have only what we know we must lose, what we are willing to lose. That selfhood, which is our torment and our treasure and our humanity, does not endure. It changes, it is gone, a wave on the sea. Would you have the sea grow still and the tide cease to save one wave, to save yourself? No. Very
1: nice. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to go out today with a giveaway and also a track before Kate Reid comes in filling in for Joe on Astral Glamour. And i have got to the track here that I've located. It's called The Seasons of Oling, and it's by Ursula Le Guin and Eleanor Armer A R M E R. And it's a. I'll describe. It's from the blurb on the on the album. It's a. A multi-movement fantasy series and the full work is titled uses of music in uttermost parts and it explores a fantastic archipelago of islands where music forms the very fabric of life on one island music is food on others water and weaving on oling music is weather and so they've brought olling to life using cellos, viola, piano, percussion and the narrator who is Le Guin herself. Cool. So we'll go out with that today. And leave you with one last quote. I do not care what comes after. I have seen the dragons on the wind of morning. Oh. Vale, Ursula, K. Le Guin. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Rob. This has been a podcast oh, from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne